Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Well, thank you very much, uh, Nick, for that very kind uh, introduction, and to all of you for coming along uh, today. Uh, forgive me uh, for this. My memory isn't quite what it used to be, uh, although I'm not sure how I know that. Um, what I'll try to do then in the next uh, couple of hours uh, is to give you a broad perspective on the work I've done over the last uh, 20 odd years uh, and say a little bit about how my interests um, have developed and where they're going. So it's as much um, a bit of history and prospectus um, as anything else. Uh, so here's a broad perspective. Um, well, in most of the natural sciences, in chemistry and physics, we're trying to get at um, laws that apply everywhere in the cosmos, the same physical laws and so on. And we tend not to think about biology, and evolutionary biology in particular, in quite those terms. The history of life uh, on Earth has a very particular um, trajectory. Uh, um, we are famously, as you know, going round one of only uh, uh, 100 million stars in one of 100 million galaxies, so viewed from this perspective, um, terrestrial biology looks uh, rather like something of a parochial um, subject. But might we perhaps learn something general and universal about the way in which evolution proceeds by studying life um, on Earth? Um, so what do I mean by macroevolution? Some people divide the study of evolution into micro uh, and macro. Microevolution concerns processes that occur over ecological uh, timescales. Uh, they're things we can go out into the field and observe and do experiments on. Um, macroevolution concerns processes going uh, over uh, millions or tens or hundreds of millions of years. Uh, which we can't study directly, and we can only study by uh, inference, of course. Um, well, of course, macroevolution at one level is just repeated rounds of microevolution over very large uh, periods of time, but the way in which we study it tends to be uh, different. Uh, and when we think about macroevolutionary patterns, we often think in terms of big changes to the physical environment, affecting extinctions and other processes um, that don't pertain at normal times, whatever those might be. Um, now, the other element in my title, rerunning the tape of life, as uh, uh, Nick has already said, goes um, back to Stephen Jay Gould. And in 1990, he published this book, Wonderful Life, um, where he asked the question, what would happen if we could go back, rewind the tape of life and rerun it? Would it be the case that little differences in the starting conditions, little perturbations and bumps along the road, might set evolution going on a radically different course? Um, a trope beloved, of course, by historians as well. Uh, would we be sitting here this evening, or would it be some other uh, intelligent dinosaur or something like that had the dinosaurs not been uh, wiped out? Um, so there's a counter view, and that really, I suppose, I could attribute to uh, Simon Conway Morris, and that's that evolution would pretty much follow the same course whatever. Yes, there would be differences in detail, um, but the overall sweep and the overall pattern uh, would be uh, similar and more or less the same. Well, one way to get to... Oh, sorry, I should say, uh, just a point of reference for my daughter, Grace. Um, Stephen Jay Gould is the only paleontologist, as far as I know, uh, who's been on The Simpsons. Um, <laughs> so the, the way we might perhaps try to get to grips um, with this idea of rerunning the tape 
um, is to look at points in the history of life where things um, have sort of been at a crisis or could have taken a radically different uh, course. Uh, let me take you back to the late heavy bombardment. This is just after the formation of the Earth, somewhere between 4.1 and 3.8 billion years ago. Uh, and during this time, the Earth was almost certainly pretty inhospitable to life. Now, one of the biggest surprises is how soon after this prokaryotic life, simple-celled life, uh, appears, um, certainly by 3.7 billion years ago and possibly much sooner. Well, some take this early appearance of life as an indication that life is actually very easy. Others say, well, we've been just, we're just lucky, we just happen to be in the right place. It's Douglas Adams' um, sentient puddle um, idea. Uh, and still others, uh, including Francis Crick of DNA fame, um, suppose that um, life must have been deliberately seeded across the universe by um, intelligent civilizations. And this, of course, is the plot um, of at least one uh, Hollywood film playing to mixed reviews, uh, I believe. Um, so um, certainly we can find things like amino acids and the building blocks of life in um, meteorites and asteroids and so forth, um, and they also seem to assemble themselves um, spontaneously. But this, as Crick points out, is very different from uh, life itself. The next big gear change in the evolution of life is the origin of eukaryotic cells. So these are cells with a proper nucleus and organelles and so forth. And this happens by at least 2.1 billion years ago and certainly, uh, well, possibly earlier. Now, if you were monitoring the Earth for signs of intelligent life, this is the point at which you'd almost certainly get terribly bored and drift away and find something else to do because nothing more or less happens for a billion and a half years. Um, and then suddenly, um, at um, 542 million years ago, there's this amazing explosion of multicellular life called um, the Cambrian uh, explosion. At first, around about 600 million years ago, we have these Ediacaran organisms here, and these are rather gelatinous. Um, squishy sorts of organisms, the affinities of which to the modern groups are rather obscure. Most people regard them as a sort of early experiment in multicellularity. Uh, certainly we have the ancestors, the close relatives of things like sponges and jellyfishes by about this time. Uh, and then by 542, there's this sudden appearance of multicellular animals within the modern groups. For the first time, we have the appearance of things like hard parts, skeletons, eyes, jaws. Um, we have predators and prey. We have food webs uh, appearing for the first time. Um, and in fact, there are about um, 30 major groups of animals today, 30 phyla. And most of these appear simultaneously, more or less, in the fossil record uh, of the Cambrian. So there we are, evolution's big bang. Uh, Darwin didn't like this at all. Uh, Darwin uh, writes in The Origin, um, uh, as to the question why we do not find rich fossiliferous deposits belonging to these assumed earliest periods prior to the Cambrian, I can give no satisfactory answer. Um, and he goes on to say, the case at present is inexplicable and may be truly urged as a valid argument against the views here in entertain. So Darwin saw it as a challenge to his theory of natural selection. 
Now, Darwin didn't know the half of it because Darwin only had a small selection of Cambrian diversity. Much of what we were to learn about the Cambrian fossil record um, is attributed attributable to this chap, Charles uh, Doolittle Walcott. Walcott was director of the Smithsonian from 1907, and from in, in 1909, he was doing field work in the Rockies and was on his way back, in fact, at the end of the season, when his wife's horse tripped over something. Walcott uh, rushed to her rescue, and in so doing, he was distracted by uh, the slab that the horse had stumbled over, and this had actually uh, opened to expose uh, this wonderful animal here, uh, Morella, uh, the, the horseshoe crab. And this actually turns out to be the commonest fossil in the Burgess Shale. Um, the preservation is exquisite. You have tissues that normally would decay, these little fine <coughs> diaphanous filaments, um, and they're preserved in three dimensions. Um, and uh, really nothing like it had been uh, seen before. Just to put this into context, if this top panel shows you the Burgess Shale uh, fauna reconstructed based on what we know, this is all we would see, and all really, I guess, Darwin knew about, based upon hard part preservation. So really an exceptional um, deposit. So here are just some of the fossils from there. This is Canadia, which is a polychaete worm. Uh, this is a, a, maybe a living relative. Uh, we think we may be able to actually specify which sort of family this uh, worm goes in. These structures here decay within hours in living specimens. So these must have been buried exceptionally fast in order to preserve this sort of detail. And our own distant ancestors as well, or something uh, close to them. This is Pekaya. This is a chordate. That's to say it's part of the phylum to which we belong. It's exactly what you don't really expect to find in the Cambrian. This is a reconstruction of the animal swimming along. So it's got a notochord. And this is a living relative. This is branchistoma. Um, so um, uh, something very like this swimming around or burrowing around in the Cambrian. Uh, and this is the poster child for all Cambrian weirdness. This is Opabinio, who, uh, when it was first described, people thought that it was a wind-up and the paper was presented. Um, so it's got five eyes, and the mouth is on the end of a long sort of um, uh, hoover, hoover pipe, uh, these imbricating flaps down the body, like nothing, no organism uh, alive today. And in fact, some have noticed uh, the similarity between... <laughs> Opabinia, and actually, arguably, uh, the Nunu is a good deal less bizarre than Opabinia. At least it has two eyes rather than five. Well, um, Gould's book, uh, Wonderful Life, documents uh, Walcott's industry in some detail. In fact, uh, Walcott extracted 65,000 specimens from the quarry, and of course, these all had to be transported by mule down the mountainside to the railway, loaded up, and then transported to um, Washington, D.C., where he then described and monographed them. Now, according to Gould, the fossils of the Burgess Shale tell a story that Walcott perhaps willfully misread. Many, perhaps most of the Burgess Shale fossils, fail to fit in to any of the groups that we recognize today. Um, in fact, there, if there are 30 phyla alive today, um, Gould argued that there are at least as many more phyla represented in the Burgess Shale. 
So Gould referred to what he called an inverted iconography of life. So he said, well, the traditional picture we have, life's got a single origin down here, probably way, way down, but animals, let's say, um, originate probably down here, but never mind. But there's, there's one origin. And then we expect a cone of increasing diversity or increasing numbers of body plans to evolve with time. Gould says, no, 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 this is completely the wrong way. We have a diversity of form in the Cambrian that vastly exceeds anything around today. And then there's this big extinction event down here, and lots of these things get winnowed away, and a small number of the remainder go on and persist up to the present day. Um, so I had the very good fortune, um, I had lots of luck actually, but one, one, of the, one of the fortunate things that happened to me, I was able to do my PhD with Derek Briggs, um, then at Bristol, uh, now in Yale, and Richard Forty, uh, then at the Natural History Museum in London, now on BBC Four, um, looking at the Burgess Shale and looking at the diversity there. And the question that I initially addressed was this one, and this is a quote from Gould, and we wanted to test whether this is true. The Burgess Shale includes a range of disparity in anatomical design, never again equaled and not matched today by all the creatures in all, all the world's oceans, so quite uh, a claim. Now, the group that I chose to focus on were the arthropods, the animals with an exoskeleton and jointed limbs, um, partly because they're by far the most diverse group uh, within the Burgess Shale. In fact, if I go back, um, virtually all of these animals reconstructed here are arthropods of one kind, not that one, uh, of one kind, not that one either, of one kind or another, but most of them anyway. Um, and arthropods have a head that comprises a number of segments, uh, and each of those segments has primitively at least a limb attached to it, and those have been sequestered in developmental and evolutionary terms from the trunk and into the head. Now, if you look at most arthropods, they fall into one, by most I mean anything after the Cambrian, they fall into one of four groups. Um, the insects and myriapods, these have a head that's com composed of an antenna stuck at the front, it's familiar. Um, these um, big mandibles that crunch things up, and then a couple of appendages behind that which are responsible for bringing food to the mouth. And myriapods, which include uh, the millipedes and centipedes, have a remarkably uh, similar arrangement. And it was thought for a long time, certainly when I did my work, that these constituted a group called the Uniramians, in fact, because their legs comprise a single walking branch. But anyway, more on that in a second. Then there are crustaceans, and these have a similar arrangement, except they have two pairs um, of antennae. Um, and there's good reasons for supposing the ones in insects here have been lost. Then there are this, this lovely group, the trilobites, of course, which are all now extinct, and these have their own particular type of head. And then, finally, uh, the chelicerates. So these are things like spiders and scorpions. These have a little pair of poison fangs or chelicerae. Often they have a pair of clubs, or indeed in scorpions, a big pair of claws behind that, and then four pairs of walking legs. Ah, right. So this is a pretty weird, this is the most pimped out insect that I could... I could find. This is the devil's head mantis. Um, and it's the weirdest insect you can think of, really, but it's still an insect. It's still got a head that comprises these four appendages. It's still composed of a head, thorax, abdomen. It's still got three pairs of walking legs. Um, 
These are all um, chelicerates, um, so they're all relatives of the spiders and scorpions. Uh, my youngest, when I was preparing this slide, um, looked over my shoulder and said, oh, look, Daddy, it's spideys. And um, after I'd administered a severe thrashing, I explained that this wasn't actually uh, the case. They were chelicerates. These aren't spiders, of course, because the body, uh, the second sort of uh, tagma is divided up, and that doesn't happen in... Um, in spiders, but nonetheless, they're part of this chelicerate group. Now then, if we look at most of the um, Burgess shale forms, or lots of them, lots of the arthropods, they don't fit any of these ground plans or body plans. So Morella has antennae, and then it had, has these weird um, sort of, um, looks like something you might use to clean the lavatory, the second appendage sticking out here, um, but just two pairs of appendages in the head. Yohoya has these enormous great appendages at the front, these sort of um, claws, and then three pairs of appendages in the head. Uh, Leoncoilia here has these enormous great appendages at the front. Basically, most of the arthropods that you pick up um, don't fit the known groups. And Gould uses this as an argument to say, well, we've got massively more diversity of body plan form. So anyway, as part of my uh, PhD, the first thing that I did was to try to quantify morphological variety or diversity. Disparity is the word that uh, Gould uses. So diversity is all about numbers of species, numbers of um, uh, taxa. Disparity is about the variety of forms. So this is what's called a morphospace. This is based on a couple of hundred characters. And the idea is that within this space, things which are similar morphologically plot close together, and things which are very different morphologically plot far apart. Now, broadly, cut a long story short, what comes out of this is big regions of this space that contain Cambrian and recent things, all kind of interspersed. And it's not the case that we find the Cambrian weird things lying way out on the periphery. Now, you can quantify the volume of space that things occupy in various ways, sort of effectively, I think, in terms of putting a box around them. What we found when we did this was that the disparity in the Cambrian is about the same as the disparity today. And that's uh, a surprising result. We also made a, a phylogenetic tree. And again, the groups in here contain a mixture of Cambrian and recent things. Now, many people have overhauled this tree quite markedly. Um, but the overall pattern, this interspersion of Cambrian and recent things, um, remains. This is one of the reasons that we study fossils. So you may know that um, crocodiles and birds are one another's closest relatives. Um, they are all both um, archosaurs. And the reason that crocodiles and birds look nothing alike uh, is that um, we've lost all the intervening um, fossils. They've all gone extinct. So what might the ancestor look like? Well, you might naively take the characters of crocodiles and the characters of birds and combine them. Or if you're thinking slightly straighter, you might wonder about what the underlying ground plans are. And you might, just by looking at living things, be able to infer something about the likely morphology of the ancestral um, archosaur. But only fossils can tell you about what actually existed and about the fabulous Baroque diversity um, that lies in between, about dinosaurs and pterosaurs and all these wonderful um, animals. Um, so we revisited the question of um, arthropod phylogeny a, a couple of years ago, this time using a phylogenomic approach. And uh, this time around, this is a couple of um, uh, thousand genes, no um, 
uh, no fossils, I hasten to add, at this stage. But the tree looks rather different, and this is by no means the last word on um, arthropod phylogenetics, and uh, many people would take issue with some elements of it. But what we find is that the groups that we had together, remember the millipedes and the insects we thought were part of a group, the Uniramia, these now split up. And remember, their heads were remarkably similar in uh, the way that they're constructed. And so this comes out as a bit of convergent um, evolution. And complex heads have evolved at least three times, once in the myriapods, once in the chelicerates, and once in a group that now looks to be called the pancrustacea, so crustaceans and um, insects um, together. Um, so within this one study, then, there are three themes that really speak to this business of rerunning the tape of life. Um, the first way in which macroevolution might be predictable is in terms of the shape of clade evolution, this pattern of early high disparity. Um, the second way is that things within our tree seem to become more complex, more than once, particularly in terms of the complexity of the head and the way that the body is uh, regionalized. And thirdly, and perhaps more subtly, there's a convergence in morphology. So convergent evolution seems to be um, a real feature um, of evolution over large timescales. There we are, that's the head of a, an insect, an ant, and that's the head of a scutigramorph centipede. And they look remarkably, remarkably similar um, in their construction, convergence. Um, now, I had the good fortune again to go and have a, a year in the Smithsonian working with Doug Irwin and um, a couple of questions that we wanted to uh, try and address. One of them was, well, okay, we seem to have a pattern in arthropods, but is that just a feature of arthropods or is it a feature of groups radiating in the Cambrian or indeed is it a feature of groups radiating in general? And the group we decided to look at was the preopulid worms. Now, at the time... Uh, the received wisdom was that preopulid worms were not in any sense close relatives of the arthropods. In fact, they were a good group to choose because they seemed quite distantly related. Um, oh, here we go. So um, preopulids are ambush predators. They lie around in the mud and they have this horrible irreversible pharynx with all these nasty spines on them. And they grab the prey with those spines and then drag them back down. They... Um, uh, go back into their burrow and uh, the poor thing that wandered by is never seen again. Um, and the, the, well, interestingly, the, the arrangement of these spines and scalids, the number of rings, the morphology of these, make very, very good um, phylogenetic characters. Um, uh, so there we are. This is from the, the remake of King Kong. No small children in the audience, I hope. This is from the remake of King Kong. And, and there's an arthropod. So this is the group, this is the first group that we looked at, and we thought that these constituted a really different group to look at. Um, so you can homologize the introvert with um, close relatives, um, with the kinorinks and with the um, uh, lorisiferans, and that allows you to root the tree. And over the last few years, lots and lots of lovely fossils of preopulid worms have come out of other um, sites of exceptional preservation uh, in China, um, and elsewhere, but particularly the Chinese specimens. Um, and so at various points, we've had to revisit this uh, analysis. But broadly, uh, what you find, again, is that the disparity of these preopulids within the Cambrian and the disparity today is broadly similar, about the same level. 
Um, the tree uh, is rather different. We have a clade here largely comprising recent things and a clade here largely comprising the fossils. And indeed, the preoperative worms have moved through the morphous space. They still are about as disparate, but they've, they've changed their average morphology, you like. and some, if you like. And some of these lovely fossils from China are filling in the gaps between the living and the fossil ones. Um, so there are lots of fossils that now look a little bit, actually more than a little bit, like some of the living groups. And um, I've got um, a student starting in the autumn, together with Shai Omar at the NHM, where the very thing we want to do is look at the links between these two different groups, the arthropods and the preoperlids. So we're now actually looking at the, um, the evolution um, of those two groups together and in concert. Um, so evolution then, macroevolution, is it predictable? Well, one way in which we might pick that idea up is in thinking in terms of clade evolution. So predictable patterns of clade evolution. So I think um, we managed to convince people that this was the, uh, the, the, the most accurate model of disparity change from the Cambrian to the recent, something rather wall-sided. Neither the traditional nor the Gouldian model um, seemed to hold up. Uh, but what we then wanted to do um, was ask whether that was a pattern that pertained whenever groups radiated and diversified. Um, so we approach this using a simple metric of the centre of gravity of a clade. If you imagine hanging this clade up, this is disparity, this is time, from the side, we can ask at what point from its origin to its extinction would it balance. Uh, if it's halfway along, then that's the centre of gravity of 0.5. Um, if it's top heavy, that's a CG more than 0.5. Uh, bottom heavy is less than 0.5. Um, we have to be careful here because many groups, of course, are truncated or chopped off by mass extinction events. And you might expect that to um, uh, result in a top-heavy uh, and rather um, plateaued distribution. So my uh, student, Martin Hughes, a couple of years ago, uh, produced empirical morphospaces for 150 major animal groups, animals only at this stage. Um, and we looked at the clade shapes that we found. Now, this is through time, the last half a billion years. These green light, green symbols here are top-heavy clades. The red ones are bottom-heavy ones. Um, Gould thought that you might find uh, a trend upwards. So you might find lots of bottom-heavy clades in the Cambrian and soon thereafter. And then gradually, you might find more top-heavy clades as time went on. We didn't. We found a straight line. These yellow ones, by the way, are things which are neither... Um, here nor there. Now, if we look at just those groups that um, go extinct, in other words, they're, they're completely extinct, so we've got the whole history of the group, um, but they don't go extinct coincident with a mass extinction, so they don't get chopped off, then what we find is that significantly bottom-heavy clades are about three times more common than significantly top-heavy ones. So this seems to be a macroevolutionary rule. This seems to be a predictable feature of the evolution of clades that they have early high disparity. If you look at the ones that get chopped off by a mass extinction, the opposite pertains. And indeed, if you look at the ones that make it to the recent, hardly surprising to find they're, they're in their um, flushes of diversity and they turn out to be top heavy. Uh, now, more recently, my student Jack Oyston uh, has asked whether this pattern applies to plants as well. Is it just animals or is it plants? Um, and so particularly if we look here at um, ferns, you can see 
Diversity starts off pretty low, but disparity is high. So there we are, early high disparity, a pattern in plants and animals, we think. Now, Jack and I thought we knew what the cause of this was. Um, and it's something called character saturation or character exhaustion. Uh, so we set about proving that this was what was going on uh, and totally failed. But never mind. Um, it was an interesting idea. The idea was, early on in the evolution of a group, things are being tried out for the first time. So characters evolve and new characters evolve and the whole thing goes along quite nicely. After a while, uh, you sort of start to run out of ideas and you have to recycle characters. There are constraints that kick in. You either have to go back to something you have before, or you have to evolve something that's already evolved elsewhere on the tree, and that's why we see so much convergence. So this is character saturation, and what you can do is plot this out on an evolutionary tree, and these little blue lines here, these are characters that change for the first time, and these red things are characters that have, um, have already appeared somewhere else in the tree, or indeed are flipping back to where they were before. So if you plot out the number of new states, so the number of novel things happening, uh, against the number of changes on the tree as you go from the root and move upwards, you get this trajectory here. Now, if everything that occurred was new and novel, you get a nice straight line with a one-to-one -one slope. But what tends to happen is that you gradually peel off from this line as things start to get recycled more and more. And uh, so Jack did this for a number of uh, groups, and uh, most show some form of character saturation. Most start to plateau off. Next question, of course, is, well, how much do they show? How quickly does this set in? Uh, and we've experimented with various ways of trying to quantify this shape. One would be, how soon do you get halfway up? Um, so. Um, a over A plus B, so this one rockets up quite quickly. Another way is to try to project the curve to an asymptote and then ask how far towards that asymptote you get. The idea broadly being the more that you saturate, perhaps the more that you're likely, pardon me, to show early high disparity. Seems reasonable. Didn't find that at all, uh, which was really quite a surprise. And so there's no relationship between our measure of disparity center of gravity and um, any of these measures of saturation. So it's not a simple explanation. And next thing, of course, you start to wonder, well, what is limiting um, the evolution of form? What's constraining disparity? And people have uh, divided the possible causes into broadly two categories. One is the developmental or genetic model. The idea is that as you build progressively more complicated bodies, your um, developmental complexity increases. And therefore, it becomes more difficult to change something, particularly early on in the sequence, without messing something else up. This is the idea of pleiotropy. And so the developmental model says that the constraints are really, these walls here represent an internal constraint on what's going on. The ecological idea is, is uh, fairly straightforward. It just says that there are other groups around around, pardon me, that are already doing a similar job. There are already other groups that are um, in the space, in the ecological space, or in the morphous space that you would like to occupy, and you can't get in there because they're already there. Um, so a good example of a developmental constraint is the neck vertebrae of mammals. You have, you know, seven vertebrae in your neck. And so how many does a giraffe have? Well, of course, long neck, you probably want more vertebrae. Nope, it's got seven. In fact, 
All mammals, from giraffes to elephants to mice to humans, have seven neck vertebrae. It seems like it's something that simply got stuck. There's no good biomechanical reason for having seven. Uh, part of the evidence for that is if you look in many groups of reptiles, in birds and in other groups, they seem to be able to play around with the number to their heart's content. And generally, if you want a long neck, you have lots of um, neck vertebrae. There are two exceptions in the mammals. The, um, the sloths um, play around with the number, and the manatees, and I think the dugongs, and possibly the, the hyraxes. And um, one of the problems, if you have a mutation that gives you a different number of neck vertebrae, um, you almost always have problems with increased rates of tumours, um, with fibrous tissue um, clogging up the intercostal spaces between your ribs, and all, all sorts of other nasty things going on. And the sloths seem to get around it by having a slow rate of metabolism. Uh, which reduces the, the strength of stabilising selection. Um, and perhaps the best way to look at ecological constraints then might be to look at what happens in the wake of a mass extinction. Um, so other groups have been cleared out of the way perhaps, and this allows a group to radiate and then fill out the vacant ecospace. So a good example of that is brachiopods and bivalves. Everyone's um, uh, favourite um, two-shelled invertebrates. Brachypods are uh, a group, and so are bivalves, comprising two valves to the shell hinged in the middle. Uh, they both are filter-feeding phyla, uh, but they're both not, uh, not one another's very close relatives. And what we see if we look through um, the history of their evolution, for most of the Paleozoic, that's up until this horrible mass extinction, the Permo-Triassic, Brachiopods are dominant, riding high. They get thoroughly hammered at the Permo-Triassic mass extinction, the largest of all the big five mass extinctions. Bivalves take a bit of a dip, but it seems that brachiopods never recover, and bivalves then come in and fill that vacant ecospace in terms of their diversity. So this leads nicely into, well, hopefully, into the next question, which is about the predictability of mass extinctions. Is it the case that as a ma at a mass extinction event, uh, things just get wiped out at random? Uh, or is there some predictable pattern? Uh, as you probably know, there are five big mass extinction events of which the Permo-Triassic, almost certainly precipitated by mass volcanism, is by far the largest, um, and some discussion as to whether or not we're heading into a sixth one. The one I want to focus on first is the end Triassic one. So this is just sort of going into um, the Jurassic. I've already mentioned the big morphological gap between crocodiles and birds. And part of the reason for that morphological gap is the end Triassic extinction. It wiped out a whole bunch of archosaurs who were previously doing very, very nicely, thank you very much. Um, things like, for example, the Ornithosuchids, superficially rather dinosaur-like in their appearance, the Rauosuchids, um, Etosaurs and Phytosaurs a bit more, Phytosaurs rather crocodile-like in their morphology. But these all go extinct um, at the um, end Triassic. And a colleague of mine, Alex Dunhill, and I asked whether one of the things that might offer you some insurance is being widely distributed geographically. So if you're just located within a particular continent, um, maybe you're more susceptible to mass extinctions. If you're globally distributed, maybe that offers you some insurance. And after all, when people think in terms of conservation priorities and red book status and endangered and highly endangered status and so forth, 
biogeographical distribution is one of the things that they factor in. Um, so maybe, uh, maybe there would be some insurance at, um, of um, wide geographical distribution across this extinction. We don't find that. So if things go bad enough, quickly enough, it doesn't seem to matter how widely distributed you are, you're still going to uh, go extinct. Another example relates to ammonoids. Now, ammonoids are a group that transition three of the big five mass extinctions. Um, and uh, my colleague Sonny Walton particularly is uh, uh, looking at the ways in which the morphospace space gets depleted as those transitions occur. Uh, but our ammonites are a nice group in that we can quantify the shape of their shell in very broad terms using just a few numbers. This is a classic piece of work from um, David Raup for all um, mollusks, in fact. But ammonites, we can quantify their shell morphology basically with just two numbers. One is how quickly the cone of the shell expands, and the other is how quickly they coil, how quickly they uncoil, if you'd rather. Um, and uh, uh, Tim Astrop, who's been working uh, here until relatively recently, has put this little virtual fossil museum together. And this is where the technology breaks down, I rather fear. Yes, so there are, um, there are globular forms. And the, the, the um, extinction that we particularly wanted to focus on was the end Devonian. And this is a period during which um, lots of um, uh, deep water uh, in the ocean upwells, and that's usually a very bad thing. And it seems that shallow water habitats um, get um, particularly um, hammered in this event. So to simplify things very broadly, there are these globular forms that now disappeared off the screen, but these we think were sort of bobbing around in mid-water. And then the classic story is that these rather more svelte, streamlined, um, laterally compressed forms were perhaps better swimmers um, and, uh, and uh, squirting around more actively and faster. Um, now, to cut a long story short, Keelong Reng, Tim Astrop, Michael Carley and myself did various um, fluid dynamic simulations, CFD stuff, water tank experiments. Uh, and this is a morphospace that plots on the rate of change of stability uh, with increasing speed. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to get your head around, but the idea is that these globular forms um, were almost certainly um, doing what we thought. They're bombing around in the mid-water. They're um, not too subject to little eddies and currents going around. They didn't seem to um, upset them or disturb them too much. These laterally compressed forms that we thought were active swimmers and active jetters turn out not to be terribly good at all because as their speed increases, they start to wobble around and they just lose stability in yaw. Um, and so actually what we think we, these, these animals were doing, their maneuverability turns out to be very good. They're very, very good at changing their direction and maneuvering around very finely in 3D. And we think quite possibly that by analogy with these sorts of laterally compressed reef fishes. We think that these laterally compressed ammonites were probably capable of picking around cluttered three-dimensional environments like, for example, reefs and picking off little um, bits of food and so on. Um, so, uh, so yes, so selection there in terms of ecology. We think that um, oh, and sorry, I should say the punchline here is it's these laterally compressed forms are the ones that by and large go extinct at these mass extinction events, particularly at the end at Devonian. Um, so these ecological super specialists, these things which are living around reefs, 
uh, are the ones that go down. And that, of course, has resonances for our um, understanding of biodiversity loss um, uh, today. Um, so another quick uh, detour then. Com complexity, predictability in terms of patterns of complexity. Already touched on this in terms of the evolution of the arthropod head. A little bit of work that we did a few years ago pardon me, <coughs> uh, looked at um, crustaceans. And in particular, um, we were interested in the complexity of their body, pardon me. <coughs> now, very broadly, you can have a complexity trend, so things can get more complex. But <coughs> it may be that you're simply diffusing away from some lower boundary or some wall back here. You could also have a trend in complexity because of clade sorting. Maybe this red clade, which isn't very complex, goes extinct. And this blue clade, that's much more complex, originates. And so you get this trend through time. Much more interesting, of course, is a situation where you have all branches of the tree becoming more complex in concert. And this is what we call, or think of in terms of a driven trend. Uh, now for, um, uh, for arthropods, for crustaceans in particular, we quantified the complexity of the body by looking at the limbs down the trunk. And something like a lobster, the analogy is with a Swiss army knife, um, they, all of their limbs are doing something different. So they've got antennae, uh, little, little claws, big claws, walking limbs, swimmerettes, pleopods, and so forth. And so you can use um, statistics from... Um, uh, sort of diversity studies to quantify both the number and the diversity of these different limb types. Something like a tadpole shrimp has about 70 or 80 limbs and they're all pretty much the same going down the trunk. So that's a low diversity thing, that's a high diversity thing, or complexity. Certainly when you quantify this trend through time, we find an increase. But again, this could be caused by clade sorting or by the extinction of a few clades and the origination of a few others. To really nail this down, you need an evolutionary tree. Then you can look at what's happening in parallel. So these are, if you like, reruns of bits of the tape of life within each branch of the tree. And when you do this, what we find is lots of groups increasing in their complexity through time. That's a, almost certainly a driven trend. Uh, and we were amused to find that this is now, if you look up complexity trends in at least a couple of textbooks, this is now the example uh, that they give you. Um, as I say, we found that quite amusing. So, right, now my current uh, PhD student, Yimeng Li, um, is extending this idea. And uh, there are basically three groups in which the body comprises uh, segments. Uh, that are differentiated in various ways. Arthropods, as I say, we've already begun to, already looked at in the past. Annelids would be a nice group to study, but the downside is it's only really their jaws uh, that fossilize well. The rest of the body rots. The ideal group in many respects are the vertebrates, and we can study complexity in terms of differentiation of the spine, ribs, and as well in terms of the differentiation of the limbs and the girdles. And that's what uh, Yimeng is, uh, is setting out uh, to do. Um, so another predictable pattern then, predictable patterns of diversity. Um, understanding the processes that shape the diversity of life was identified in a, a science article uh, a few years ago as one of the, the top 25 biggest challenges for science in the 21st century. To do this, however, 
you need big phylogenetic trees. And so uh, a project that we started a, a few years ago was trying to come up, trying to produce super trees with which we could do these sorts of analyses. Now, a bit of software that's been produced by um, Katie Davis and John Hill called the Super Tree Toolkit allows you to take source trees, synthesize these together, resolve conflicts between them, and generate giant trees which you can then use to study evolutionary trends across. Um, so uh, we're fortunate uh, to have a visitor with us, um, uh, Chifei Tang, uh, and she's a, a dipteran expert, an expert on flies, and last week she produced this uh, lovely tree of mosquitoes, and we're hoping to use this to study um, the co-evolution between the mosquitoes and some of the diseases that they vector. Uh, and this paper came out last week. Uh, this, is, um, this is bordering on, on magic as far as I'm concerned. This is uh, work by Ross Mounts, uh, Peter Murray-Rust, who are the brains behind the outfit. Um, and what they did, they managed to produce software that could read through this journal, IJSEM, and it extract, found, in fact, cleverly from the PDFs, found the trees, coded them up, uh, uh, and then ran a super tree analysis of them all on the fly. Um, now, uh, th th so the, the idea is fantastic. Uh, this is a sort of bicycling dog paper, uh, in that the remarkable thing about it is that it works at all. The tree itself is sort of semi-brilliant down towards the not terribly good at all, to be honest. But, but the idea, I think, is fantastic, and, and we're making strides on actually improving this whole approach. Um, but so as an example of the sort of questions you can ask with these giant phylogenies, then, um, this is looking at the Anamura, the, um, the uh, uh, hermit crabs and their relatives. And this is always a time-calibrated super tree, uh, and this shows you um, sort of mean global temperature in effect. And what we find is that as temperature goes down, um, rates of diversification, rates of speciation go up. So this is a global um, pattern in biodiversity rate shifts with global temperature. So this is a, this is a trend that happens again in parallel in lots of branches of this tree of Anamura. So we're finding accelerated rates as things get cooler. And this is a study we hope to get out soon. This is looking at the Caridian shrimps, so the true shrimps. And again, a time-calibrated tree. What you see is these things live uh, in the sea, but also on various occasions have moved into freshwater habitats. And when they do that, their rates of speciation seem to go up. So their diversification seems to accelerate when they move into freshwater habitats. Uh, and we think this is to do with um, the fragmentation, that uh, increased um, allopatry um, that we usually find within um, freshwater environments. Um, so... Uh, predictable patterns of convergent evolution, then. Um, another way in which evolution might be predictable. Um, this, I'm sure you know this. This is the eye of uh, a fish. Yes, that's the fish. That's the squid. Um, so this is a camera eye, a complex camera eye made up of a lens, a retina, um, uh, cornea, uh, and the full works. And this has evolved convergently in this thing, which is more closely related to a snail, and this thing in this particular fish over here, uh, which is more closely related to you, are opposite ends, in other words, of the tree uh, of life. And eyes uh, as a whole have probably evolved about 50 times. There are only so many ways, because of the physical constraints of forming an image, there are only so many ways you can make an eye. And it seems that um, because of this, 
convergently evolved, remarkably convergently evolved eyes uh, keep evolving. Um, within the mammals, there are some lovely examples of convergent evolution. Um, you probably know that there are two major branches of mammal evolution, the placentals, like us, uh, and the marsupials that have their young, have been born very early and they go into a pouch. Uh, these are both extinct, I'm afraid. Uh, this is Smilodon fetalis, which is the placental saber-toothed. Uh, and this is a sort of saber-tooth designed by a committee. This is the, uh, the, the marsupial one, Thylacus smilus. But amazing convergence in the overall. I mean, to, to your distant ancestor, it probably didn't matter greatly whether you had this or this coming for you, to be perfectly honest. Um, uh, here's an even better example. This is uh, a skull of a, a dog or a wolf. And this is the marsupial answer to the same thing. What you have to bear in mind, what you have to uh, realize here, is these are two branches of mammal evolution diverging from something fairly rat-like in form. So this convergence in the shape of the skull, in the shape of the teeth, I mean, this is utterly, utterly uh, mind-blowing. This is, I'm afraid, the last thylacine uh, ever. They're now extinct. This was uh, in supreme irony. This is in Hobart Zoo. This is Benjamin. Uh, died in 1936, I think, um, and uh, the Suprema actually got locked out of its enclosure overnight and died of exposure. Terribly sad. So we no longer have them with us. Um, moles. At least three groups of mammals have evolved moles. Um, there we are. So uh, this is the, the mole you all know and love. Uh, I think this is the marsupial one. This is the golden mole. This is the naked mole rat. Never mind uh, mole crickets. Again, the convergence in the shape of the forelimbs is quite striking. Hence the name. Here are two woodlice, except the top one is a woodlouse. The bottom one is a glomerid millipede. So if we look at close relatives of these, that's a closer related to a crab. This is, of course, a millipede. Again, Convergence because of um, similar selective pressures and so forth. And my personal favourite, although there are probably other things going on here, this is just ridiculous, the hummingbird and the hummingbird hawk moth. This is a long beak, same type of flowers, I think, as well. Uh, and this is actually using a, a, the, 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 um, uh, the mouth parts here to suck out um, nectar. Again, high rates of metabolism, similar ecological niche. There's probably a bit of mimicry going on in terms of the coloration, but the, the, I mean, it's just quite stunning. Oh, and it can happen in plants too, let's not forget plants. So these are, this is a cactus on the left, uh, and this is a euphorbid. So, uh, oh, uh, yes, new world, old world, uh, never the twain shall meet. Now, Jack recently has been uh, marmalizing lots of uh, phylogenies, molecular and morphological ones. Uh, and until about 100, uh, well, no, no, so for, for about the last 100 years, I should say, we thought we knew how the major groups of mammals were related. And it's something like this picture on the left. And then along came phylogenomics, and it all got blown out of the water. And this new tree came along, completely different. Now, huh, on the face of it, you would say, well, of course, it's phylogenomic data, you know, clearly, um, clearly this is the one we're going to believe. But if that's the case, then... Century, you know, decades, um, generations of comparative anatomists and morphologists have been completely barking up the wrong tree. And what this implies is that convergent evolution is so widespread, so detailed, that it's fooled um, all of these uh, anatomical experts for a very, very long time. Um, now, Alfred Russell Wallace famously came up with many of his ideas on evolution from looking at geographical distributions of species. And Alfred Wegener um, uh, was widely thought to be mad because when he looked at the distribution of fossils, 
um, he found that they implied that at some point in the past, the continents must have been in very close proximity and said, well, maybe the continents drift around. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Okay. And what we thought was that if, if, the, um, if this sort of evidence was enough to move continents about, then maybe it was good enough to choose between uh, competing phylogenies. And so Jack's uh, now done this for about 100 case studies or thereabouts, going to be submitted on Friday. Um, and, uh, and we find a much, much better fit for the mammal tree um, the molecular tree than the morphological one to biogeographical distribution. Some of the groups that come out, uh, so we, we thought we knew, for example, these are the traditional groups like insectivora. Um, these have been blown out of the water. Um, uh, in fact, only, so these, uh, with the cross, these now no, no longer belong in what remains of the insectivora, and it's only the mole here and the hedgehog, which is in the, the tattered remains of the insectivora. These other groups have all gone off uh, within other clades. Ten, I think that's a ten, part of the problem is you look for photos of ten wrecks and you get loads of photos of hedgehogs. Why? Because they're so remarkably convergent. Um, so, yes, yeah, so give enough mammals in a long enough time and they will come up with an insectivorous design sufficient to fool um, a lot of anatomists. Uh, and there are other groups that, um, uh, that come out from the molecular tree that are a bit um, uh, unfamiliar. So, for example, the Afrotheria, so named because of the biogeographical distribution of the group. So hyraxes, aardvarks, dugongs, golden moles, elephant shrews, and indeed elephants. and um, Tenrex, sorry, careful where I go. Um, and then the Uacontoglyres is one of these new molecular groups. Um, I, I was, I, I was um, uh, held to include a picture of a yawning rabbit. There is the yawning rabbit. Um, so as I say, um, Jack has um, marmalized lots of pairs of molecular and morphological trees. And again, in a statistical sense, the molecular trees tend to fit um, uh, the biogeographical signal better than the, molecular count the morphological counterparts. So we think these are more likely to be right. What this means is massive, massive convergence um, in morphology. And it's something where... Um, uh, we're starting to get a better handle on. So I'll finish on a, on a bit of nonsense then, I think. Um, <laughs> another bit of nonsense. Um, so can we make any general inferences then from convergent uh, evolution? Uh, and I wrote uh, uh, a little article last year that went into the Daily Mail, uh, enjoyed it hugely. Um, they actually took it and improved it, much to my astonishment. But, uh, never mind. Was, uh, but there, uh, there we go. Um, so... Um, if you think about convergence, let's say in flight, uh, then if you were an animal with an internal skeleton, um, then and you want to evolve powered flights, happened three times, what, at least, um, birds, pterosaurs, and bats, you tend to do it uh, in a similar way. And of course, filmmakers have picked up on this. So if you want to sort of invent a new type of flying vertebrate, uh, you take some of the characters of birds and some of the characters of bats and pterosaurs and you sort of combine them. There we go. Um, but could we look at the tree of life and could we see any um, themes that seem to uh, repeat? Well, here's just one example. If we look down at the base of this phylogeny, then these are sponges down here and jellyfishes there. There's a jellyfish. Um, so jellyfishes and, um, and their <coughs> allies um, have what's called radial symmetry. So they have, um, you can sort of stick them on a spigot and turn them around, not that I'm proposing you do this, and they look symmetrical from any angle. Um, now you go higher up the tree than that, 
and you go into groups which are bilaterally symmetrical. So you have a left and a right side. But what this also means is you have uh, a dorsal and a ventral surface, you have a head uh, and a tail. Uh, and this never seems to be reversed. Well, there is one group that does it, but um, the less said about those, the better. Um, but so bilateral symmetry then seems to be something that um, you would predict um, as a convergently acquired trait, something that you might see in any rerun of the tape of life, or indeed that you might find um, uh, in aliens, perhaps, we thought. Um, what this also means is that you have a mouth at one end and an anus at the other. Uh, it means that you're going to encounter the environment head first and food items you're going to want to um, sense. So you probably put all your um, eyes, other sensory systems at the front of the animal. And you probably also um, want to put the mechanisms for dealing and processing with that data at the front. So you centralize your nervous system, you develop a brain and a head. So all that seems to make perfectly good um, sense. Uh, now, when uh, filmmakers were limited to portraying aliens as um, people uh, in a rubber suit, um, unsurprisingly, they tended to look quite humanoid. Um, they tended to give them four limbs and so forth, and arms and two eyes and so on. Uh, but now we can do anything we like. Uh, we can CGI whatever we desire. It's intriguing to see that... Um, what we're producing is looking even more human-like. Now, it's probably just audience reaction and, and so on, uh, but it's intriguing to wonder whether there's more to this. Um, so there we are. So what I hope that I've shown is that there are patterns uh, within macroevolution, repeatable patterns at one level in the evolution of clades, um, at one level in terms of what happens in ecological selection, perhaps, in terms of what happens at mass extinctions. There may well be selective and repeatable patterns, things which generally happen um, at these sorts of events. Um, and so there I'd like to, uh, to, to leave you. Um, and before I do, um, I'd like to thank uh, you all for coming today very much. Thanks to Jack uh, Oyston, um, and to uh, uh, Chifei and Yimeng for helping to organise things and uh, make sure everyone was in the, the right place. Um, thanks to Anna Franklin for organising this today and also to Cher Hulin. Thanks to all of the students that I've had the privilege of teaching and supervising over my last mumble mumble years here. Um, and thanks to all those who've mentored me and otherwise supported me uh, since arriving in Bath. Um, Stuart Reynolds, Lawrence Hurst, it's a long list, here we go, Mike Mogie, Keith Charnley, Robert Kelsch, Richard Cooper, John Beeching, and Tana Seckley, just to name uh, a few at the risk of omitting others. Um, I want to particularly thank my parents. Uh, I was the first in my family to make it to university, and they couldn't have been more supportive and open-minded uh, about uh, what I did. Uh, thanks to my wife, Elizabeth, to my three, our three girls, Grace, Olivia, uh, and Hannah. Uh, the work patterns of an academic must be a little bit baffling uh, if you're not one. Um, lots of unread bedtime stories, uh, and uh, sorry about that. Uh, and thank you all for your uh, kind support and attention. Thank you.